0: Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914-1918war.com. to In this episode we are continuing our reading of Bruce Benn's father's Bullets and Billets. We're up to chapter 20. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the Substack uh, newsletter and you'll get all of these transcripts delivered directly to your inbox along with other articles. Now let's get on with it. Everything you hold wild in the state. You are the of a reward the Chapter 20. That Leave Train. My Old Pal. London and Home. The Call cool of the Wild. One wants to have been at the front in the nasty parts to appreciate fully what getting seven days leave feels like. We used to have to be out at the front for three consecutive months before being entitled to this privilege. I had passed this necessary apprenticeship and now had actually got my leave. The morning after getting my instructions I rose early and packed a few things I was going to take with me. Very few things they were too. Only a pack and a haversack, and both contained nothing but souvenirs. I decided to go to the station via the orderly room, so that I could do both in one journey. I had about two miles to go from my billets to the orderly room in the village, and about a mile on from there to the station. Someone suggested my riding. No fear, I was running no risks now. I started off early with my servant. We took it in shifts with my heavy bag of souvenirs. One package, the pack, had four little willy cases inside it, in other words the cast iron shell cases for the German equivalent of our 18 pounders. The haversack was filled with aluminium fuse tops and one large piece of Jack Johnson shell found in a roof at Saint-Evon. Several clips of German bullets removed from equipment found on Christmas Day and a collection of bullets which I had picked out with my pocket knife from the walls of our house in Saint-Evon. The only additional luggage to this inventory I have given was my usual copious supply of gold-flake cigarettes, of which, during my life in France, I must have consumed several army corps. It was a glorious day, bright, sunny, with a faint fresh wind. Everything seemed bright and rosy. I felt I should have liked to skip along the road like a young bay tree. No, that's wrong, like a ram, only I didn't think it would be quite the thing to do with my servant there. King's Regulations, Chapter 158, Paragraph 96, Line 4 Besides, he wasn't going on leave, so it would have been rather a dirty trick after all. We got to the village with aching arms and souvenirs intact. I got my pass, and together with another officer, we set out for the station. It was a leave train. Officers from all sorts of different battalions were either in it or going to get in, either here or at the next stop. Having no wish to get that station into trouble, or myself either, by mentioning its name, I will call it Month. It was the same rotten little place I'd arrived at. It is only because I'm trying to sell the stationmaster a copy of this book that I will call the place a station at all. It really is a decomposing collection of half-hearted buildings and moss-grown rails, with an apology for a platform at one side. We caught the train with an hour to spare, You can't miss trains in France, there's too much margin allowed on the timetable. The 10.15 leaves at 11.30, the 11.45 at 2.20, and so on. Besides, if you miss your train, you can always catch it up about two fields away, so there's nothing to worry about. We started, I don't know what time it was. If you turn up the word locomotion in a dictionary, you'll find it means the act or power of moving from place to place From locus, a place, and motion, the act of moving. Our engine had got the locus part all right, but it was rather weak about the motion. We creaked and squeaked about up the moss grown track and groaned our way back into the station time after time in order to tie on something else behind the train or to get on to a siding to let a trainload of French floorboards and plum and apple jangle past up the line. When at last we really started, it was about the speed of the rocket on its trial trip. Our enthusiastic going-on-leave ardor was severely tested and nearly broke down before we reached Boulogne, which we did late that night. But getting there and mingling with the leave-going crowd which thronged the buffet made up for all travelling shortcoms. Every variety of officer and army official was represented there. There were colonels, majors, captains... Lieutenants, quantities of private soldiers, sergeants and corporals, hospital nurses and various other people employed in some war capacity or other. Representatives from every branch of the army, in fact, whose turn for leave had come. I left the buffet for a moment to go across to the transport office, and walking along through the throng ran into my greatest friend. A most extraordinary chance this! I had not the least idea whereabouts in France he was, or when he might be likely to get leave. His job was in quite a different part, many miles from the Duve. I have known him for many years we were at school together, and we have always seemed to have the lucky knack of bobbing up to the surface simultaneously without prior arrangement. This meeting sent my spirits up higher than ever. We both adjourned to the buffet, and talked away about our various experiences to the accompaniment of cold chicken and ham. A merry scene truly, that buffet. Everyone filled with thoughts of England. Nearly everyone there must have stepped out of the same sort of mud and danger bath that I had. And my word, it was a first-class feeling, sitting about waiting for the boat when you feel you've earned this seven days' leave. You hear men on all sides getting the last ounce of appreciation out of the unique sensation by saying such things as Fancy those poor blighters sitting in the mud up there. They'll be just about getting near stand two now. You rapidly dismiss a momentary flash in your mind of what it's going to be like in that buffet on the return journey. Early in the morning, and while it was still dark, we left the harbour and ploughed out into the darkness and the sea towards England. I claim the honoured position of the world's worst sailor. I have covered several thousand miles on the sea, brooked the briny as far as India and Canada. I have been hurtled about on the largest Atlantic waves, yet I am, and always will remain, absolutely impossible at sea. Looking at the docks out of the hotel window nearly sends me to bed. There's something about a ship that takes the stuffing out of me completely. Whether it's the horrible, pale, varnished woodwork mingled with the smell of stuffy upholstery, or whether it's that nauseating whiff from the open hatch of the engine room, I don't know. But once on a ship, I am as nought. Not nautical. Of course the channel was going to be rough. I could see that at a glance. I know exactly what to do about the sea now. I go straight to a bunk and hope for the best. If no bunk, bribe the steward until there is one. I got a bunk, deserted my friend in a cheerless way and retired till the crossing was over. It was very rough. In the cold grey hours we glided into Dover or Folkestone. I was too anemic to care which and fastened up alongside the wharf. I had a dim recollection of getting my pal to hold my pack as we left Boulogne and now I could see neither him nor the pack. Fearful crush struggling up the gangway I had to scramble for a seat in the London train, so couldn't waste time looking for my friend. I had my haversack, he had my pack. The train moved off, and now here we all were, back in clean, fresh, luxurious England, gliding along in an English train towards London. It's worth doing months and months of trenches to get that buoyant electrical sensation of passing along through English country on one's way to London on leave. I spent the train journey thinking over what I should do during my seven days. Time after time, I mentally conjured up the forthcoming performance of catching the train at Paddington and gliding out of the shadows of the huge station into the sunlit country beyond, the rapid express journey down home, the drive out from the station, back in my own land again. We got into London in pretty quick time, and I rapidly converted my dreams into facts. Still in the same old trench clothes, with a goodly quantity of Flanders mud attached, I walked into Paddington Station and collared a seat in the train on Number One platform. Then, collecting a quantity of papers and magazines from the bookstalls, I prepared for enjoying to the full two hours' journey down home. I spent a gorgeous week in Warwickshire, during which time my friend came along to stay a couple of days with me, bringing my missing pack along with him. He had had the joy of carrying it laden with shell cases across London, and taking it down with him to somewhere near Aldershot, and finally bringing it to me without having kept any of the contents. Such is a true friend. As this book deals with my wanderings in France, I will not go into details of my happy seven days' leave, I now resume at the point where I was due to return to France. In spite of the joys of England, as opposed to life in Flanders, yet a curious phenomenon presented itself at the end of my leave. I was anxious to get back. Strange, but true. Somehow one felt that slogging away out in the dismal fields of war was the real thing to do. If someone had offered me a nice, safe, comfortable job in England, I wouldn't have taken it. I claim no credit for this feeling of mine. I know everyone has the same. That buccaneering rough-and-tumble life out there has its attractions. The spirit of adventure is in most people, and the desire and will to biff the boche is in everyone, so there you are. I drifted back via London, Dover and Boulogne, and thence up the same old stagnant line to Crom de month. Once more back in the land of mud, bullets, billets and star shells, It was the greyest of grey days when I arrived at my one-horse terminus. I got out at the station and had a solitary walk along the empty muddy lanes back to the transport farm. Plodding along in the thin rain that was falling, I thought of home, London, England and then of the job before me. Another three months at least before any further chance of leave could come my way again. Evening was coming on. Across the flat, sombre country, I could see the tall, swaying poplar trees standing near the farm. Beyond lay the rough and rugged road that led to the duve trenches. How nice that leave had been. Tomorrow night I should be going along back to the trenches before Wolvergame. And as Bruce re-enters the trenches, we will leave it there. Uh, that was Chapter 20. Uh, next episode will be Chapter 21. Quick reminder that you can find the Substack at 19141918.substack.com and there you can get the various articles I write delivered directly to your inbox. As always, review things, subscribe to things, do all those things that everyone always nags you to do but you never do um and thank you very much for listening bye bye